I started playing in a jazz band when I was in high school. I had never really listened to much jazz before then, but I immediately fell in love with the whole idea behind it. So many moving parts, so many notes. Each part alone might sound like complete nonsense, but together, striking melody, close harmonies and syncopated groove. One man's noise is another man's melody. The trick to a good jazz band is that each person has to be bought into their part of the music. Horns, drums, guitar, bass, each may have a different role, but all part of the plan. And that plan is to make spontaneous music that causes an emotional charge, even if just for a second. A chill down your spine from the top of your neck, hair slowly rising on your arm, skipping heartbeats to mimic or match the pulsating tempo of a swing tune. Is your foot tapping yet? A pro once told me, if you give a jazz standard to a hundred different musicians, you'll get a hundred different interpretations. And not one will ever play it the same way twice. Each musician will improvise the melody and rhythms of a song in a unique way. The tone of the horns will have a growl specific to the lips of the player. Even the altitude of where the band practices can make a difference. I had a conversation with the second chair trumpet player one day. He was a Buddhist, I think. Knowing I was a Christian, he would talk with me from time to time about life and religion. We had educational discussions about life, family, God, and what each one meant to each other. I soon realized we had similar values in our beliefs. The same confidence he had in Buddhism, I had in Christianity. With my faith being as young as it was, I would find myself empathizing and buying into his tune. I started thinking, is religion like jazz? With my version Christ and his Buddha? Are we just playing together in harmony? I'm a nice guy, accepting and open. Who am I to say who's right and who's wrong? Christ, Mohammed, Buddha, the universe. Aren't we all just improvising the same melody? Are all religions just different expressions of the same song? So what about it? Are all religions basically the same? Are they all just different expressions of the same song? Is it kind of like there's this mountain and there are a whole bunch of different paths leading up to the top, but it doesn't really matter which path you take to the top because they all eventually end up at the top where God is. And it doesn't really matter whether you call him God or Jehovah or Yahweh or Jesus or Allah. It's just different names for the same God, and they're different paths, whether it's Christianity or Judaism or Buddhism or Islam. They're all just different paths up the mountain, and they will all eventually get there. And when we get there, we're going to be surprised because there are going to be a whole lot of people there who we didn't think were going there because they were taking a different path than we are, than we've taken. And that question, are all religions the same? Actually, it's often worded, aren't all religions essentially the same? With the implied answer of yes, they are essentially the same. That question is probably the most common question uh, that I've been asked 
over the years when we talk through these different questions that we're dealing with in the series that we're calling Why God? A couple of weeks ago, we asked the question, is faith in God rational? And we said, yes, it absolutely is. There is good reason to believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is and that he's done what the Bible says that he's done. And then last week, AJ looked at the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And those two questions are asked a lot, but this other one here, the question of aren't all religions essentially at their core the same? That question is the one that's asked over and over and over again. And you know, when you think about it, there's a lot that's true about the contention that all religions are essentially the same. If you think about the five major religions in the United States, Christianity, Judaism, uh, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism, and you look at those five religions and you focus especially on their ethics, on their values, on how they teach their adherents to live, on what their adherents are supposed to do in order to be good people, there's an awful lot of overlap between those five. In fact, all five have variations on what we call, most of us coming from a Christian or a Judeo-Christian background, what we would call the golden rule. So for example, in Christianity, and you've heard this said probably before, do to others as you would have them do to you. That's the golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. You've probably also heard it expressed in Judaism, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, an expression of the golden rule. You may be less familiar with its expression in Islam, but it's still there as well. None of you has faith until he loves for his brother or his neighbor what he loves for himself. None of you has faith until he loves for his brother or his neighbor what he loves for himself. Again, little different wording, but the same essential core of the golden rule behind that. Buddhism, hurt not others in ways that you yourselves would find hurtful. It's expressed maybe in a negative way or in a non-negative way, a counter-negative way, but again, it's the same basic idea. Hinduism, this is the sum of duty. Do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. So you look at these five major religions and they all subscribe, they all prescribe the golden rule. And if you dig deeper into those religions, you're gonna find there's a huge amount of overlap in the ethical systems, in the values that are taught in these various religions, so there's definitely some merit to this idea that all religions are the same, especially if you look at it from an ethical perspective. But there's a problem with looking at it from an ethical perspective. There's a problem when you think that all religions are essentially the same because they share an awful lot of the same ethics. And Peter Kreeft is a professor of philosophy at uh, Boston College, and he, he addresses this issue this way. He says, the objector, the person who's making this claim, is assuming that the essence of religion is ethics. It is not. Everyone has an ethic, but not everyone has a religion. Tell an atheist that ethics equals religions. He will be rightly insulted, for you'd be calling him either religious if he's ethical or unethical because he's non-religious. Ethics must be the first step in religion, but it's not the last. And what Kreeft is saying is ethics are part of religion. But if you try to boil down religion to ethics, it doesn't work. Because there are a lot of other systems out there, and, and Kreeft goes on and he talks about other systems like communism and socialism and secular humanism, and even, he argues, Nazism. They all have an ethical foundation, and there's actually an awful lot of overlap between the ethics 
of those various non-religions like socialism and communism. So if you want to say that the essence of religion is ethics, then you start have to, to say things like socialism and communism and Platonism are religions. But the adherents of socialism and communism and Platonism would be among the first people to say, no, they're not religions. So we've got a little bit of a difficulty with that. So then maybe we move to the next step and we say, okay, so maybe ethics are part of religion, but they're not the essence. They're not the core. And you ask, what is the core? What is the essence of religion? And I think most people would answer that question by saying belief in God or belief in the supernatural is at the core and the essence of religion. But there's a problem with that. And Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, and actually a lot of people don't realize he'd been a professor for many years before he became a pastor. He puts it this way. He says, some, some say that religion is a form of belief in God, but that wouldn't fit Zen Buddhism, which doesn't really believe in God at all. Some say it's belief in the supernatural, but that doesn't fit Hinduism, which doesn't believe in a supernatural realm beyond the material world, but only a spiritual reality within the empirical. And Keller's point is that if you say that God or the supernatural has to be part of the essence of religion, then you've got to exclude Zen Buddhism and you've got to exclude Hinduism. But most people would say Zen Buddhism absolutely is a religion and Hinduism absolutely is a religion. So we've got difficulty even defining what a religion is. And if we can't come up with a definition of religion that everybody agrees on how are we gonna come up with what the essence of that religion is and how can we say that essentially all religions are the same? And when you start looking at the different religions, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, et cetera, you find that there's some obvious differences between those religions. Yes, they overlap, overlap a lot in their ethics, but at their core, at their foundation, there's an awful lot of distinctions and differences between them, and it really begins with their conception of God and whether there even is a God to begin with. So you've got Christianity, Judaism, and Islam that all see one God. They're monotheistic religions, but if you look at the God of Christianity and Judaism, a lot of similarity there. And in fact, we who are Christians would see us as worshiping the same God. Now, we see Jesus as God as Christians, Jews do not, so there's a distinction there. Islam is talking about Allah, and when you read about Allah versus Jehovah or versus Jesus, there's a major differences between, the, say, the Christian understanding of who God is and the Muslim understanding of who God is. And then you move into Buddhism, and you don't have God in most forms of Buddhism. So there's a huge distinction there. And then you look at Hinduism, it's polytheistic. There are hundreds of gods in Hinduism, but their concept of the supernatural is totally different than our concept of the supernatural as followers of Jesus. And then you ask yourself, how in each religion, or what does each religion look at in terms of the afterlife? What is the afterlife like in each religion? Both Christianity and Islam see heaven versus hell, although the, the uh, relationship between heaven and Christianity and paradise and Islam, there's some distinct differences between those as well. So there's some differences there, even though they both sort of got this heaven-hell kind of dichotomy. Judaism shares that somewhat, but within Judaism, it's a whole lot less developed than it is, say, within Christianity. 
And then again, you move to Hinduism and Buddhism, and you don't really have this concept of heaven versus hell. You've got this idea of enlightenment, and you've got this idea of reincarnation, coming back hopefully to a better life the next time around, multiple times until finally you, you reach the state of enlightenment or nirvana, for example. And then you ask the question, how do you get there to wherever there would happen to be? Well, in Islam and Judaism, so much of it is based on sort of a combination of devotion to God and living the right kind of life. In Buddhism and Hinduism, it's all about karma. You do the right things in this life, you're going to build up good karma. You do the wrong things in this life, you're going to build up bad karma. And if you've got enough good karma, then the next time around, you're going to get one step up the ladder. If you've got bad karma, you're going to go one or more steps down the ladder. And then within Buddhism, there's these, this idea of purging yourself of all desire and of all emotion because that's going to make it a whole lot easier to, uh, to attain good karma. That's totally different than the concepts of, uh, of Islam or the concepts of Judaism. Very, very different there. And then you bring in Christianity and you look at Christianity, and at the core of Christianity is not what we do. It's ultimately faith in God and the works, the good things that we do follow from our faith in God as opposed to preceding our faith in God. So when you ask those questions about the nature of God and what is the afterlife like and how do we get into the right kind of afterlife, huge differences in the various religions. And in fact, if, if we could bring up onto the platform this morning Clergy from all the different religions, you got me as a minister, you bring a Jewish rabbi, a, a, a Buddhist monk or a, a Buddhist priest, a Hindu priest, an Islamic imam, and you asked us all, are all five of those religions the same? The one thing we would all agree on is, no, they're not. There's some essential fundamental differences at the core of those religions. And some of you know that I grew up in a mixed religious home. My mom was from a Jewish background, and my dad was from a Lutheran Christian background, and we kind of had what I, I would like to call religious detente in our family. You know, we'd celebrate Christmas, we'd celebrate Hanukkah, but they were secular holidays, and there wasn't a whole lot of spiritual overtone to those. And so for the, for the first dozen or so years of my life, I really didn't think a whole lot about God, and I knew there were differences in the backgrounds of my parents, but it didn't mean a whole lot to me. And then when I was a young teenager, I began to think more about what it meant. Is there a God out there? And how is it that I can know this God and, and, and have a relationship with Him? And I eventually ended up putting my faith in Jesus as my, as my Lord and as my Savior. But I also grew in my appreciation for my Jewish background because so many, in fact, pretty much all of my living relatives uh, were and still are Jewish. And we'd often go to bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and, and the, you know, we'd celebrate Passover together and those sorts of things. And I began to understand and appreciate my Jewish heritage. And then about 20 years ago, my mom's mother died. So my Jewish grandmother died. And I went to the funeral up in, in, in the Boston area. And much of the funeral was in Hebrew, which is obviously pretty typical at a Jewish funeral. And I had studied Hebrew in seminary, so I understood a lot of what was going on, but I had some questions, and I wanted to, to gain a deeper understanding both of the Jewish faith, but also of my heritage, and just even, honestly, I'm a bit of a nerd, of the Hebrew language, you know? So I walked over to one of my cousins afterwards. We, we were uh, at one of the 
the events afterwards. It's called Sitting Shiva, and we're, we're there, and we're talking. I went up to one of my cousins who I knew taught Hebrew school to kids, and I asked her, hey, can you help me to understand some of these things that were happening in the ceremony, especially some of the Hebrew? So I asked her a couple questions, and she's like, hey, I, I, I don't really know. You need to go and ask the rabbi. And I said, which, who's the rabbi? And she says, he's one of our relatives. Now, quick aside here, if you're from a Jewish background, you will get this immediately. If you're not, you just gotta trust me on this one. Everybody is your relative, and in my family, everybody is your cousin. They may not be related by blood, but they're still your cousins. So we have this, so one of our cousins is a rabbi, and he's sitting over in a chair in the corner, and he's kind of off by himself, and she says, you gotta go over and ask the rabbi. So I go over and I introduced myself and we started chatting. I said, hey, would you mind if I asked you a few questions about the, the, the service? Um, I understood some of the Hebrew, but I wasn't sure. And so he started answering my questions. We had a really good conversation. And then the thing that I was worried about happened and he looks at me and says, uh, so uh, how do you know Hebrew? And I'm like, uh, I'm a Christian minister and uh, I studied Hebrew in the Christian seminary that I went to and I'm here at my grandmother's Jewish funeral and let's not get mad at each other kind of thing. And he looks at me and instead of getting mad, his eyes go wide and this big smile on his face, he says, we should talk, sit down, we should talk. And for the next hour, we talked about Judaism, we talked about Christianity, we actually talked about Buddhism because it turns out that while he had been a Jewish rabbi, he had converted to Buddhism, he had left his Judaism because he found something in Buddhism that he felt was lacking in Judaism. And we had this incredible conversation comparing and contrasting these three religions. And one of the things that the two of us absolutely agreed on is there are major differences between those three religions. And then toward the end of the conversation, he looked at me, he says, okay, so we've been talking a lot about these different things. From your perspective as a Christian minister, what is so unique about Christianity? And it wasn't really a challenge. He actually wanted to understand what was unique, what was at the core of Christianity. So I said, it's the resurrection of Jesus. That is what's unique about Christianity. And he shook his head and he says, no, it's not. Lots of other religions have resurrection. And I said, yeah, I understand people come back from the dead in other religions, but when you understand the significance of Jesus' resurrection, that it pays for our sins so that we can have a right relationship with God, we can be restored to a right relationship with him, that's at the core. And he's like, yeah, I get that and that makes sense but I'm still not totally convinced that that's what unique, what's unique about Christianity. And so we talked about it, we explored it back and forth, and I left that conversation feeling like I wish I had been able to give him a little bit better of an answer. I wish that I'd been able to convince him about the uniqueness of Christianity. And I thought about it a lot over the past 20 years, and I've seen him a number of different times over the past 20 years. Every time there's like a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah, a wedding, or, or whatever it is, he sees me from across the room, and he, makes a, he points at me, he makes a beeline for me, and we end up sitting, and we talk for a while, and I love those kinds of conversations. But that question that he asked has been in the back of my mind over and over again for the past 20 years, and it brings me back to the mountain analogy that we talked about a few minutes ago. Think about that analogy for just a minute. It's assuming at its core, there's a basic assumption in that mountain analogy that all of those different paths go up the mountain 
and that it's our responsibility to climb up the mountain to God. But what if the analogy's wrong? What if we get to the top of the mountain and God isn't there? The whole analogy falls apart. We've spent our entire lives following the path that we think will lead us to the top of the mountain where God is, and we get there, and He's not there. What if instead of many paths leading up the mountain, there's only one path, and it doesn't lead up the mountain, it leads down the mountain? And what if when we get to the top and God is not there, He's not there because He took that one path, He made that one path down from the top of the mountain because he knew that we didn't have what it takes to make it up the mountain. So he came down the mountain to be with us. And so when you ask the question, what is unique about Christianity? Christianity is the only religion that says, you don't have to go up the mountain to be with God because God has come down the mountain to be with you. And if that's true, then we're looking for God in all the wrong places if we're trying to climb up that mountain in order to be with him. The apostle John, who is Jesus' best friend and one of the leaders of the early church, he puts it this way. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. He sent his son down the mountain to be with us. This is love, not that we loved God, not that we climbed up the mountain, but that he loved us and sent his son down the mountain as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the uniqueness of Christianity is that God says to us, you don't have to climb up that mountain in order to be with me. I've come down that mountain in order to be with you, and I've done it in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what's unique about Christianity. Looking at it from a slightly different perspective, a number of you have heard of, of C.S. Lewis, the author, the philosopher, the, the Christian writer and, and thinker. And I, I've shared this in the past, but it's such a good story that I want to share it again. C.S. Lewis was uh, at a conference in Great Britain of uh, British philosophers and professors of religion who were talking about comparative religion, and they're asking the question about, in this particular case, the same question that my Jewish Buddhist rabbi relative asked me, what is unique about Christianity? And so one person said, it's the incarnation, it's Jesus becoming a man, it's God becoming a man. And others responded and said, no, there are a lot of religions in which the gods come down to earth in the form of human beings. And then somebody else gave the answer, said it's resurrection. And I felt pretty good because at least some smart professor said the same thing that I said, you know. And so they had that conversation. They said, no, there's resurrection in, in other religions. And yes, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uniqueness to Jesus' resurrection. But they just didn't feel like they had reached the core, the essence of Christianity. And so C.S. Lewis walks in the room and they're all talking and going back and forth. And he says, hey, what are, what are you guys arguing about? They said, we're trying to figure out what is the essence of Christianity. And C.S. Lewis says, that's easy. It's grace. Grace is the essence of Christianity. Christianity is the only religion in which God's love for humanity is unconditional. It doesn't depend on what we do or what we've done. It depends on who God is and what he's done 
for us. And that's grace. It's His unmerited favor. It's His love toward us because that's His character toward us. Christianity is the only religion that doesn't say, here's what you have to do to be with God. It's the only religion that says, here's what God has done to be with you. Beth read this verse that's on your cards a little bit earlier in the service. The Apostle Paul, again, another one of the leaders in the early Christian church, says it's by grace, by God's unmerited favor toward us that you've been saved through faith, through believing, through trusting in Him. And this isn't from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Paul is saying, you didn't earn it. God gave it to us as a gift, not by works, not by anything we've done, not by climbing up the mountain so that no one can boast. Paul is saying, look, if it were about climbing up the mountain, then we could boast, hey, I got to the top and you didn't get to the top, or I got there faster than you did, or I took the shorter path. And Paul says, no, there's not, that's not how we get to God. God has come down to us. It's by His grace, by His love, by His unconditional, unmerited favor and love. And all we have to do is trust Him, believe in Him, have faith in Him, receive, in a sense, that gift that He offers us. It's not about what we do. It's about what He's done. Every religion has a story. Every religion has a story that kind of follows the sweep of history. And Christianity is no different in that respect, although the story of Christianity is very different from every other religion. It starts off in a perfect environment. We call it the Garden of Eden. It starts off in a perfect environment with a perfect relationship between God and humanity. But soon after God put us in this perfect environment, provided for all of our needs, we decided that we wanted to try to live independently of Him. We figured, I got this. I can do this on my own. But we couldn't, and we failed. And when Adam and Eve chose to eat the forbidden fruit, their relationship with God was broken, and their relationship actually with one another was broken. And they immediately decided to hide from God. They ran away from God, but what did God do? Adam, where are you? God knew exactly where Adam was, but he wanted to pursue Adam. He wanted Adam and Eve to see that he was seeking after them. They were hiding from him. He was seeking after them. And at most, at this point, in most stories, in most religions, they tell us that this is the point when we have to start climbing up the mountain in order to get back to God. But Christianity's story doesn't tell us that. It, instead of telling us to start climbing, it says that God himself pursued us. God himself came down the mountain in the person of Jesus Christ who was born, lived, suffered, died. He came to the earth in order to be with us. But the story takes a dark turn because instead of embracing him, instead of saying, thank you for coming down the mountain, we decide we don't like him and we want to kill him. And that's what happens. Jesus was crucified because of my sin, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against the God who had done absolutely nothing worthy of us rebelling against him, but provided for all of our needs and who was pursuing us 
even though we were hiding after him. So the tragedy is that we kill him, and yet what God does is he doesn't let it end there. He takes that death and he redeems it. He takes that death and he turns it into life through the resurrection of Jesus. And it's not just a restoration of life to Jesus. It's the opportunity of restoration of life to us and restoration of a right relationship with God for us. And that's the foundation of Christianity. Christianity is the story of a God who says you don't have to climb down the mountain. In fact, you don't have to climb up the mountain. In fact, you can't climb up the mountain. It's too high. It's too difficult. You don't have what it takes. So I'm going to come down to be with you so that that relationship can be restored, not because of what you've done, but because of what God has done. Christianity is the story of God coming down to us and us embracing Him by faith, not blind faith, but as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, rational faith. There is good reason to believe that the story of Christianity, that the unique story of Christianity is true. And all we need to do is say, yes, thank you for coming down that mountain. I didn't deserve it and I can't earn it, but thank you. And I want that forgiveness I want that restored relationship with you. Christianity is the story of what God has done to be with us, not, not what we've done to be with him. And that's what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he was referring to grace. That's what's unique, what's different, what's foundational about Christianity. Ask yourself this question. Am I still trying to climb up that mountain? Am I trying to climb up that mountain by whatever path? Am I trying to climb up that mountain to get to be with God? That's not an easy life. And I was talking to some folks after the first service, and, and one was saying to me, I'm trying. I'm doing my best, but I feel like my best is never good enough. That's true. Our best never will be good enough. It's not an easy climb. It's not even a difficult climb. It's an impossible climb. And if my relationship with God depends on my ability to climb that mountain, I've got absolutely no hope. But fortunately, it doesn't. It depends on the fact that He's come down to be with us. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter 11. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, don't climb up the mountain. He says, just trust me, just rest in me. So if you've never come to the point, and I don't know where you are in your relationship with God or, or, or the lack thereof, but if you've never come to the point where you've said, you know what, I'm tired of trying to climb that mountain, I can't do it, and said, thank you, Jesus, for coming down the mountain to be with me so that I can be with you. If you've never done that, today is a great day to do that. And if you want to talk about it after the service, I'll be hanging out up front. Come on up. We'll talk. And if, if we need a little bit more time, we'll set up a time and we can meet during the week and we, we can talk. And, and I can, I'd love to answer any questions that you have. Or maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you've already embraced the fact that Jesus has come down the mountain to be with you and you've already 
received his forgiveness and the restoration of your relationship with him, but you find yourself probably the way that I find myself so often. I find myself trying to climb that mountain, not in order to establish a relationship with God, but because I feel like if I don't try to climb, then God is going to be disappointed or he's going to be mad at me. And Jesus says, no, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. So he's saying to all of us, stop climbing and start trusting. Stop climbing and start resting. I came down to be with you. Just enjoy that. I'm with you because I love you and I want to be with you. And all you need to do is trust me. All you need to do is embrace me. All you need to do is have faith in me. Let's pray together. Father, it's pretty amazing to think that we don't need to do anything other than trust in you, trust in what Jesus has done for us so that we could have a right relationship with you. And I thank you that we don't have to climb that mountain. And I pray for all of us that we would recognize that, that we would embrace that, that we would have faith in what Christ has done for us. And I thank you that you've come down that mountain, Lord Jesus, to be with us. And I pray that wherever we are today, all of us would take some time, think about that, reflect on that, and trust in you, the one who loves us, not because of what we've done, but because it's who you are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In a few minutes, uh, we're going to celebrate communion together. And if you would like to stay and join us, if you're a follower of Jesus and you want to celebrate what Jesus has done for us, let me invite you to hang out. In about 15 minutes or so, we'll celebrate communion together. And I think it'll be a good time together. Have a great week.